0: This episode, I've invited two
1: hyperallergic editors.
2: My name's Jason Lopez Casal, and I'm the editor of reviews here at Hyperallergic.
1: And I'm Dan Schindel, I'm associate editor for Documentary.
0: And we're going to talk about some of our favorite films this year. First, we start with our art house and indie faves, and then we even get to talk about the glut of superhero movies that's come to dominate the box office and popular culture in the last few years. I'm Hrugvart Tanyan, and this is the Art Movement's podcast from Hyperallergic.
2: I'll maybe start with like kind of a bigger hit. I think a favorite for me as someone who's kind of the daughter of immigrants was the film The Farewell. It's a film that I went and saw with a friend of mine, and we left the theater kind of feeling like there wasn't a single dry eye in there. And as I mentioned, like, it's something that really resonated with me because so much of the film is really thinking about not only memory, but diaspora, and what it means to be estranged from a place that you feel deeply connected to while no longer being there. What's wrong, Dad? Please tell
1: me. The is dying.
2: She doesn't know, so you can't say
1: anything. The family thinks it's better not to tell her.
2: Why is that better? Chinese people have a when people get cancer, they die. I think for me, as someone who's the daughter of a Dominican immigrant and who has a lot of family, both in the DR and also here all over the country, The Farewell brought up a lot of issues about how I connect to some of those family members, especially when it comes to mm, language. Yeah. My Spanish is is really not where it should be or where it used to be. And so the kind of difficulties that Aquafina's character has with communicating not only with her grandmother and also with other characters in the film, and how that comes down to language and also generational and cultural differences really resonated strongly with me.
0: I was just gonna say, I I love that you said that about language because I think that's one of the things about diasporas people often don't realize is even when you leave and you're fluent, language changes. And even like German friends of mine say, if they don't keep up with the German media, they don't get in the lingo. They don't understand And So I think that's such a great point. I'm glad you brought that up. And I'm wondering if you can give like an executive summary of the film for those who may not know it.
2: Sure. So The Farewell follows a character, Billy, as she, right after she finds out that her grandmother has been diagnosed with a terminal illness, and basically what happens as her family attempts to sort of manage this diagnosis the family decides not to tell their grandmother or not to tell Billy's grandmother because they believe that telling her will only make her life shorter and, and more unpleasant. Mm. And so they decide that they're going to keep the secret and manage her health and take care of her wow. so that she lives her life the best way she can until her end of days. Billy, as the granddaughter who was raised in the U.S. rather than in China, where most of her family is from and where her grandmother is still based, has a lot of problems with this. She feels like it's dishonest. She feels like it's also taking agency away from her grandmother. And so I think what really comes across in the film is not only does Billy's position reflect a position that is very sort of American, in Mm -hmm. quotes, that is sort of really concerned with like individualism and this perception of agency and choice being these sort of paramount ways of thinking about anything, it also really kind of underscores the fact that care of a person, um, especially towards the end of their life, is is really a collective thing. And so Mm. while I have many thoughts and feelings about the family's decision to not tell the grandmother, I do think that it brings up a lot of conversations about how we think about caring for our elderly, caring for our families, how we think about this idea or this sort of nebulous concept of truth being something that's not actually so easy to define like what does it mean to give someone information that they maybe can't do anything with or maybe that will only hurt them like it sort of made me think a lot about the old saying ignorance is bliss and whether or Uh. not i actually agree with that and (laughs) i think we could say a lot about that in our current political context but i think it sort of brought it up in some particularly interesting ways for me
0: I love it. Design starting by dropping some wisdom. Okay. So, uh, Dan,
1: how about you? What do you think? What's your first pick for a film that everyone should see this year? I'm going to go with an obvious pick. Um, it's the one that I wrote about for a site. It's called Parasite. It's from South Korea, from director Bong Joon-ho. <laughs> Parasite, I can't remember the last time when a consensus favorite I thought so lived up to that consensus. It's an extremely fun movie, which is also incredibly smart in a way that's way too rare. It's certainly rare for American films, but South Korea has been on a terrific bend with really interesting cinema in recent years. Really, for the past few decades, the filmmakers there have only honed her craft and Bong has been at the forefront with that. And this is in many ways like a culmination of a lot of what he's been doing of class with his experimentation in genre and with his very, very specific sense of humor, which is very dark, but something that I at least very much appreciate and which I think strikes a chord with a lot of people. So Parasite follows this lower class family that's hustling to get by. Like they take odd jobs like folding pizza boxes and even then they're in competition with other freelance pizza fox folders to try to get these gigs at the beginning of the movie like the kids are trying to find a f- cell signal that they can use because the wi-fi that they've been like pirating from their neighbors now it has a password on it mm. um so it's basically this vision of the hustle, which turns into a literal hustle when they start glomming their way onto this rich family. First, his son uh, gets this job as an English shooter, then he gets his sister a job for them. Then they get the driver of the family fired so their dad can take over. Then they get the family's housekeeper fired so their mom can take over. And they do, <laughs> they do all this without the rich family knowing anything about any of their relationships. One of my friends tweeted that after they had seen the movie themselves, apparently in their audience, someone remarked, oh, I wish we got closure on the rich family too afterwards. And it's like, that's a great way to miss the point. This is a a movie that has more contempt for just like the utter unearned status and no nothingness of the upper classes. But its vision of class conflict is also, while it's funny, very ultimately based in reality because up to a certain point, the Khan does not become against the rich people, but instead puts them into conflict with other poor people. Right. Um, That's a great
0: point. Yeah. Dan, I have a question for you about South Korean cinema, because, you know, the film at Lincoln Center is having a little retrospective of that sort of turn of the century moment where like South Korean film jumped onto the international scene in a big way. Now, why do you think there's been sort of that synergy? You know, what do you think is so special or maybe,
1: you know, so universal about South Korean film? I couldn't speak to whatever business forces are at play in the country that might incentivize or support this kind of arts. That's always an important factor to consider when looking at any individual country's cinema. So like, I can't uh, contribute on that end, and I'm sure that plays some role. But like, on a cultural side, and I'm not an expert on South Korean culture either, but especially like in films that deal with class, which you will see again and again, South Korean class relations are very... They're pushed to a break in a way that even in America, we might not be able to imagine because labor conditions in that country, like there's this very harsh work culture and like unionization is like hit many stalls in recent years. And like that's actually come to a crux as well. In recent political movements, so that's a variety of things like that, stuff like that. Also, like the very singular um, situation of this that they have of North Korea, is like a very unique touchstone that a lot of South Korean films draw on. Like last year's favorite, Burning, had that as an incidental element that is not central but provides a very strong thematic heft. And like that's something that, in basically no other country, you can really draw upon. Mm, That's a good point. How about design? Do you have
0: any thoughts? I mean, I definitely think K-pop is, you know, Mm. this sort of rise of pop culture and Korean culture in general has certainly buoyed, I think, their film uh, culture as well.
2: Yeah, I can't really speak to sort of um, what incentives are going on in terms of funding. But I do think that part of what really struck me about Parasite and what I think has made it so successful as a film is that while there are so many kind of like jokes or references embedded in it that I think speak specifically or maybe speak in a certain way to a Korean audience, the story could very much take place anywhere. Mm. It could just as easily take place in New York or in LA or really in any other um, country where we are feeling the effects of the ways in which the wealthy are squeezing out opportunities for people who are not wealthy. I think right. that it's a story of inequality that while very specific in certain ways to Korean culture, translates very easily across culture. Great point. I think I was reading something about Parasite and the fact that like, the whole tutoring scheme being something that's, I think, particularly comical to Korean audiences because of a high-profile official who was forced out after a corruption scheme emerged, <laughs> having to do with getting their daughter into medical school. like. I think a joke like that Sounds kind of, familiar. Yeah, like it lands a certain way in Korea, but also here in the US where we just recently had a quote, Operation Varsity Blues that ensnared a host of celebrities and other wealthy folks and basically made it clear how much they were sort of using their money and their influence to kind of tip the scales in favor of their children and in getting into school as if they don't already have every other advantage. <laughs> it makes it really a story that- is totally understood and also really like lands effectively with audiences here that's kind of how i felt about the film
0: totally so i'm gonna throw in one film i think hassan fasili's midnight traveler is i think a film that everyone should see i mean i was really blown away by it when i saw it at sundance this year Because, you know, I think this whole idea of migrant and the cinemas coming around, the migrant movement, and sort of, it's not really a movement, it's a reality. There's been a lot, but rarely have we actually seen a film from the perspective of an actual filmmaker who has actually been sort of, you know, who's being forced out of his country and in his case Taliban put a bounty on his head and he was forced with his wife and his two daughters to leave Afghanistan and travel through Iran and Turkey until he gets to Europe and you know that film really sort of emotionally really hit me there because not only is he a filmmaker his wife's also a filmmaker and his children are obviously very comfortable around this so there was like a level of comfort I think in the film that was incredible and I I want to know how he got the sound so good in a film because he did everything supposedly on smartphones. And I don't understand how he got sound so clear uh, You know, in that case. So I think there's a little bit of movie magic there in my opinion, but everything was supposedly shot on smartphones and I just think everyone should see that emotionally, it really opens up the realities, you know, for, I think, a general audience of what they face. I mean, talking about even like violence of the far right in Bulgaria that they're forced to deal with. The fact that even when the film was released, he was still being, you know, he's still in a camp in Germany. And I mean, the fact that this was sort of like slowly sort of brought out, and I think is incredible. And I do want to mention, I just found out today, PBS's POV is going to be, premiering that on television on Monday, December 30th, for those who might be interested. But highly recommended. Midnight Travelers, I think is a brilliant film.
1: This is in many ways the um, decade when documentation became fully first person, thanks largely to the internet and to a proliferation of smartphones. And you see more work like this, both in fiction and nonfiction. And I think that it makes a tragic amount of sense that eventually a filmmaker would do this, that someone would be forced into a reality migration and decide to document their experience. Right, but sad, but true. <laughs> yeah, and I think that he's performed in invaluable work in doing so. It's is a very hard to watch movie, but also the moments of beauty that he and his family find along the way are really striking. And I can't say it like it's a movie that gives you hope, but it's a very strong testament to their resilience that they were able to pull this off.
0: Yeah, and I think the formal things they deal with, like at the point where he turns off the camera Mm -hmm. because he's about to find what he thinks is his daughter's body or something. And I mean, there are these little elements that you realize as a filmmaker, he's much more conscious of. And I think that's what makes the film really powerful too. Those little things of the framing and understanding subject and your relationship to it. And the fact that you know this is autobiographical. I just think there's so many things about that film that hopefully, people will enjoy in the year's ahead. Design, next film, any other films you want to you want to <laughs> highlight?
2: Yeah, I think another film that has really stuck with me this year is Garrett Bradley's America. In 1913, Burt Williams, who was a Caribbean-born performer making more money than the president at the height of his career, directed what is thought to be the very first feature-length film with an all-black cast and integrated production. And it was a film I saw earlier this year, I think while it was on the festival circuit, and it seems to still be kind of doing the rounds. And it's one that really stuck with me for the way in which it tackles the thorny issue of representation mm-hmm. from so many different perspectives. It's specifically focusing on the representation of black Americans on film. And it really is kind of paying Paying homage to the legacy of Burt Williams, who is a really early black performer and um, kind of one of the earliest film stars, I guess you would say, who has not been remembered very fondly by history for the fact that he performed in blackface. And this film is really kind of building upon the legacy of a film called Lime Kiln Club Field Day, which was found in MoMA's archive several years ago and kind of existed as a series of fragments.
0: And let's just be clear, Moma's Museum of Modern Art.
2: Yes. And the film sort of was given a new life as this archival assembly, and it was realized that this was a film that, had it actually debuted, would have come out in 1913, two years before Birth of a Nation, and it would have wow. featured a pretty progressive uh, storyline that centered a romance between this black couple, and it actually was it was a really incredible story for the way in which it focused on a love story, rather than trafficking these really like grim and dark and racist stereotypes, which was so common among films of the era. And so what Bradley did is she worked with this archive and was so inspired by the film that she went on to make this project America that was really kind of endeavoring to sort of create new icons and new forms of representation that were more inclusive and more acknowledging of the fact that this idea of, quote, like, black exceptionalism on screen, which is sort of perceived to be having a moment right now because we're seeing this wave of attention on black filmmakers and black performers... But this is something that has always existed. Mm. And just sort of this legacy as something that is new and really like a passing trend is not only erroneous, but it's also damaging. And so what's so important about Garrett's film is that she sort of charts out this very like continuous thread of achievement is kind of what she calls it. That's really looking at the legacy of performers, historical figures. It's also a film that's really deeply rooted in New Orleans, where she's been based for 10 years And so it creates this new way of kind of imagining black folks on screen that I think to me was not only really stunning and beautiful, but also just gave me so much to think about as a film programmer as well myself, who's often thinking about the ways in which black people are rendered in images, specifically moving ones.
0: Yeah, you know what i also loved about that i heard A Q&A with garrett bradley and people asked why it was just called america and she specifically said one of the things was when people google america she wanted images like this to come up mm. and i thought that was so beautiful because that also sort of represents this sort of venn diagram all these different issues right it's not just representation on the screen it's literally representation on our screens too which i loved
2: absolutely and i think garrett and i spoke about this a little bit in the interview that i did with her for the site But it's this idea of kind of taking advantage of the ways in which like filmmakers are kind of forced to jump through all these hoops and go through all these press campaigns and all these things just to be able to make their work and so why not take advantage of it and think Mm -hmm. about the way in which algorithms and search engines tend to pull up images tend to represent people online and feed directly into that and challenge it Mm -hmm. it's really directly tied to what she's saying about this idea of creating new icons And thinking about not just how we represent America, but also who gets to be called, quote, American, rather than having a modifier before saying you're African American. Right. I actually think there's plenty of reason to just say if someone wants to identify as American.
0: Yep. Art. But, you know, at the at the same time, what I also loved about that film is, if I remember talking to her, that she talked about she also wanted to have, like, a gallery version of that piece, or, like, some sort of sculptural, which I think is also a nice sort of uh, way to also bring up that a lot of these films we're talking about, they're becoming more and more hybrid in the way they sort of exist. And in her case, she also wanted to see it in an art-like space. So it wasn't just in a theater. And I think that's a really good example of, like, I mean, I mentioned Midnight Travelers, which is made for for a screen, but I could see watching that on my iPhone in a way that would bring a different level of intimacy and that the films are being made for, you know, in the ways that we actually watch them now. So, Dan, I mean, I think this brings up a little bit of the essay you published on Hyperallergic this week. So do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Because, you know, as one of the things as you started here as documentary editor was I sort of challenged you to like put your ideas down on paper so people kind of get a sense of where you're coming
1: from and sort of what you're thinking of. So, go ahead. So, my essential philosophy as associate editor for documentary is that a lot more things are documentaries than you might traditionally think. Not just looking at it in terms of film or television, but also in terms of what's on social media, in terms of what gets published on the news in terms of other ideas like art which involves like real life data or even going beyond that like online video or video games even or comic stuff that's published online and I've already like commissioned and published work to that end during my time as editor and this like essay is basically me summing up that philosophy so I'm citing a whole bunch of different stuff and saying That's a documentary, you might not think of it, but it is using reality in some way as part of its medium to tell its story or to make you think about something like reality is tangibly part of its medium the data is part of what makes up a sculpture based on data points or so do you want to talk
0: about a specific example maybe the talk show the one that done in virtual reality might
1: be an example absolutely so there's this youtube channel called Searmore. the user sear interviews people. He basically finds uh, old style human interest stories like you might see on the daily news, except he's conducting these interviews in a virtual reality chat. So Seymour is using a variety of avatars, but he's talking to people using like Japanese bird avatars or Kermit the Frog or (laughs) Winnie the Pooh or whatever. So it's this very odd effect, but it's really fascinating. Like one of the most famous CMR videos is when he attends the baptism of an anime girl being performed online. I have a question. Yeah, yeah. Um, at some churches, they have like a dress code, right? You know, it's on Sunday, you get in your, your, your nice dress shirt and your nice slacks, and you show up to church. In VR churches, there's like an avatar dress code. Like, would someone <laughs> kind of like not wearing yeah. pants like this not be allowed? You know what? It's up for to like a theologian to argue over whether it's legit, but it's performed by a real pastor who actually has a church online. But again, I, to me, like that is like a legit baptism. Right? Now, whether God would accept it or not, I don't know. <laughs> but seeing that kind of interaction is so interesting to me. And I think that we're really only at the beginning of like – this new way of interpersonal communication, like the internet was just a prelude to what's going to be offered by things like virtual reality or increased vectors for communication that whatever else is gonna come down the pipeline in the coming years. And there's other stuff too, like we have one article we published is about young women on TikTok dancing to voice messages left by very abusive exes. And to me, that is something that is clearly in line with feminist video art from the 80s up till today. And our writer Monica Castillo did a great job of linking that tradition to what these mostly teenagers, but also young people are doing.
2: I tried all day to talk to you about this and you're just blowing me off. I'm telling you the truth. I'm telling you all this and you still don't trust me. I'm sorry I went off on you. I don't even know what to do. Like I'm doing everything I can. To me.
1: And TikTok and social media in general is a fascinating platform for people doing this sort of thing through their own lives, which to me is a form of documentation, is a form of documentary. And the way that we interact with the world has an art to it. And I would love to get people to think more about that. That's great.
0: A uh, fun fact, you know, one of the first dates Vikan and I ever had, who's my husband, uh, was in Second Life. We went Mm. gallery hopping in Second Life. So, um, yeah, so virtual reality has been part of our lives for quite a while, and that was probably 12, 13 years ago. So so we all have it. What's the strangest thing you've done in in, uh, virtual reality design?
2: Let me think about that. You know, I think probably... One of the first experiences I had in virtual reality, and probably still the most memorable, if I can say that, was experiencing Lynette Walworth's film. Um, I'm forgetting the title of it, but it reenacts the testing of atomic bombs in the Australian outback. Mm. And I remember witnessing or taking part in this film when I was working at the Museum of Modern Art as a fellow. And I was assisting with the staging of their first virtual reality screening, which was Lynette Walworth's work. And so putting on a headset... And suddenly being transported to a part of the Australian outback where a huge mushroom cloud was blooming in front of me was not only a really startling experience, but it also really just sort of, yeah, it prompted a lot of thinking. And then my experience, like being an assistant in the audience, helping out some of our older film members or folks who hadn't experienced virtual reality Yet either it was a really interesting experience in that you could watch yeah. people have this very visceral response to a pretty violent episode in Australia's history. and. And that actually has happened here in the US as well. We've also done atomic testing. Right. You know, it's
0: amazing with virtual reality, I keep hearing people say, oh, it makes me queasy. It makes me, you know, and it's it's funny, we haven't gotten over that yet, but it's, it's amazing. Like, where are we with that technology? It's really strange. But I wondered if you had any comments on Dan's essay or just thoughts about like, what does constitute documentary now?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think, Dan, I'm really glad that you brought up some of those points because in reading through your essay myself, what I was so struck by the way in which we have been sort of liberated from medium in various ways. I think that different parts of the art and film world are kind of wrestling with that in their own ways. But I do think there's something really exciting about the fact that something can be a film without ever having a theatrical release anymore. I'm not someone who feels like that has to define a film being a film. But I also think that There is still something really fantastic about seeing a film in a theater, especially when it comes to sound and the scale. I think that all those things are perfectly valid, but I think that as someone who works a lot with artist-moving image, Mm -hmm. which tends to show both in theaters, also in gallery settings, or more sort of informal art spaces, I think about this tension of like, what's a film versus what's a piece of video art all the time. And so I think that it's really exciting that we're moving more towards conversations where maybe that delineation is less important.
0: So do you have a working definition? What is a video versus video art versus a film?
2: I don't and I think a lot of it and that's very intentional also. I think a lot of the way in which I approach the work as a programmer who's kind of thinking about both like the black box space and the white box of the gallery is really along the lines of the artist's intention. Mm -hmm. Like how did you mean for this to experience? Is it important to you as a maker for an audience to experience this work from a specific start point and with an audience until the end? Or is it okay for them to walk in at a different point in time and maybe leave before it's over and come back to it? I think that how you experience a work in space and time, these are all considerations that filmmakers or artists or various makers consider when they're making moving image. Yeah, And I think that what is important to that process is very much something that should be considered when it comes to the exhibition of that work.
0: Totally. Dan, so now do you have any other big picks that you want to uh, highlight for this year?
1: I think that at this point, probably my favorite movie of the year would be High Life from director Claire Denis. Trash. Refuse that didn't fit into the system. Until someone had the bright idea of, of recycling us to serve science. It's yeah, yeah. the kind of sci-fi movie that actually gets some respect from the mainstream. And, you know, if it were up to me, people would consider a lot more of it. But I'm going to take this one because it's a heavy film. It is about Robert Pattinson and a bunch of other prisoners on a spaceship hovering over a black hole with all of the intended philosophical ramifications of that. <laughs> that Very- sounds brilliant, yes. actually. <laughs> Is this very grim look at mortality, at the question of like what motivates you to continue going on in the face of literal oblivion, if not figurative oblivion? because eventually they do create life on this station where there should be none because there are a bunch of prisoners who have no prospects ahead of them. And so Panson has to grapple with like how he's going to continue for his child, even as the people around him can succumb to various forms of despair. It's such a beautiful, beautiful movie in the most perverse way because it's so violent. (laughs) And not like violent in the fact that there's all this, you know, brutality or killing, although there is some of that. It's just very violent... In both the situation that I set up for these characters and the mindset that they are forced into because of it, it's also a great prison film because of that, and it has applicable themes to the way that we dehumanize prisoners, even though it has this fantastical setting. But the spaceship is this stark cube. and like the black hole that they are hovering over. Denis conceived of the visual effect with the help of Olafur Eliasson, who you know has a very distinct orange in his uh, light displays, which it turned out, thanks to that first photo of a black hole we got this year, is actually really close to the corona around a black hole, which is a very strange bit of kismet. So it meant that he was like a suitable person to create that effect. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> Though, to be fair, a halo of light isn't exactly that specific, so.
2: I think part of what Dan is trying to say that it, Denis is referencing this like very specific part of Eliasson's work, um, which he's, he's very much been known for on the world stage. And so I think this is a really great example of sort of like film crossing over into art and art crossing over into film. And sort of Good point. what we were talking about, about these boundaries and genres just sort of being blurred and that being more something that's exciting rather than frustrating or cause for panic.
0: Now a little break to tell you about the sponsor of this episode, which is the great indie film service, Ovid. What's Ovid, you ask? It's a collaborative effort by eight of the best independent film distributor companies in the United States, including Bullfrog Films, Degenerate Films Collection, Distrib Films U.S., First Run Features, Grasshopper Film, Icarus Films, Kimstim, and Women Make Movies. So are you looking for the perfect gift for the cinephile in your life this season? How about giving them the gift of a whole year of the best documentary and art house films from around the world? Our friends at Ovid TV are making that easier than ever with a special holiday offer. From now until midnight, Monday, December 2nd, Ovid.tv is offering 25% off their annual subscriptions. That means you get a whole year of Ovid for just $52.50 instead of $69.99. All you have to do is visit www.ovid.tv and use the code THANKS2019 at your checkout. They have it all, so I wanted to shout out a couple of flicks that I've been dying to see myself, including Jay Myself, which is a documentary about photographer Jay Meisel who in February 2015, after 48 years, begrudgingly sold his 36,000-square-foot home in Manhattan, which is located at the corner of Bowery and Spring Streets. And you probably remember it as it's a 100-year-old landmark building that was often covered with graffiti all around. And then there's Black is the Color, A History of African-American Art, which is a documentary documentary, that offers a really concise survey of some of the most fascinating art by Black artists in the U.S. So much goodness on the site. Please check it out at Ovid.tv. So I'm going to jump on the sci-fi bandwagon to mention another film I wanted to bring up. That isn't exactly something we talk about in art circles, but Avengers Endgame 2019. <laughs> <laughs> I had to bring up a superhero movie because, you know, as somebody who grew up reading comic books and and uh, enjoys superhero movies, no matter how emotionally hollow they make me feel nowadays sometimes, this one was actually pretty good. And it turned out to be the third most expensive film ever made. And the other two are like Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides and Avengers Age of Ultron. I still don't
2: understand why Pirates of the Caribbean was one of the most expensive I
0: have no idea either. I think it's the special effects, I'm guessing.
2: They use real boats, so.
0: Ah, that, that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, $356 million. Does anyone have any thoughts about these superhero movies? And like, I feel like they've sort of taken over the box office and so much of the attention.
1: Even if there's a small chance, we owe this to everyone
0: who's not in this room to try. We
1: will. I mean, they have. They dominate discussion. They dominate theaters. And... It is funny because I also come from like a background of loving comic books, but very rarely do superhero movies like convey what I find appealing about superhero comics. You do not find like even an ounce of the visual ingenuity that you can find in many comics in the composition of superhero films. And that's not even down to like the artists being inferior. It's just like the way that these films are made. where so much of it is pre-visualized and decided to have time by committee. Like, very famously, Marvel approached Lucretia Martel, of all people, to direct. And, like, part of their sales pitch to her was that she wouldn't have to worry about doing the action scenes. It's really weird. I don't get, like, some of the choices that they go after. But, yeah, it's weird. And, I mean, recently, Martin Scorsese created a big kerfuffle around (laughs) (laughs) the
0: issue of superhero movies. And I'm sorry I'm bringing it up because both of you are sort of, you know, (laughs) reacting in different ways on your faces.
2: There's some (laughs) eye-rolling happening in the room. That's okay.
0: <laughs> That's for sure. But I mean, I think what he was trying to say, at least in his sort of like curmudgeony old guy way, was that these films are sort of made by committee, like you said,
1: where there's sort of the auteur or art history isn't quite there. Would you agree with that, Dan? I quasi agree. So that's actually something that gives me an opportunity to bring up something that like I didn't want to bother to bring up in like social media because like that discourse is so tiresome. But while Scorsese is perfectly justified in many of his concerns about the way that not just Marvel, but the way that Disney and other entities come to dominate the industry and, like, what that might be doing to them, especially, like, stuff like how Disney treats the Fox catalog now that they've acquired 20th Century Fox. Those are all perfectly valid concerns. However, the fact that he does this through a framing of trying to delineate between, quote-unquote, cinema and other film is very strange to me. Right. Like, because he creates a definition of cinema which has no basis whatsoever in any objective matter. Like, I can't remember the precise, like, terminology he uses, but he sets up this parameter of, like, creating this sort of truth for a viewer, or like bringing them to some emotional revelation. And like, if you're trying to make a good argument, you're leaving yourself too open for like people who do like Marvel movies to go like, Oh, well it didn't make me feel that way. It's too subjective. And like art is subjective. So like these kind of divisions within it are just like very arbitrary. And like, right. he would have made his arguments so much better if he had just focused more on how well they're not for me. And this is why I've been trying to like defend his idea of cinema, which is an illusory concept, if instead he had just tried to explain better why they don't work for him, because now he's created like this objective thing that can be argued over on subjective means. To me, like the question of like what is and isn't art is not interesting. To me, it's all art, it's a matter of good and bad art. It might turn your stomach to think of like a Marvel movie as art or cinema, but it is, but you can just say it's bad cinema or art. That's fine. I I might agree with you.
0: I'm going to jump in there. Right. I think it's good cinema to watch on a plane, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which is where I watch most of these films nowadays. It I seems. think that's
2: fair. Honestly, I think many of us are doing that. I also think it's sort of it, what really spoke to me about that debate is the way in which it's really kind of arguing for authorship. When I think that so much of the conversation about film is moving away from that model and really moving more towards a way of thinking and talking about film that is less focused on the primacy of the director. Mm. And I think that so many of the conversations that I've had with filmmakers who are working today, especially ones who are in the earlier phases of their career, is that that delineation between this like all seeing and all knowing director and the rest of everyone else, quote unquote, is much less important and really doesn't speak to the way in which they want to tell stories. So is I think it, it makes yeah. sense to me that Scorsese is really trying to hold on to that model. But I think it's just not quite aligned with the reality of the way that a lot of makers are thinking about cinema.
0: Is it a generational shift,
2: you think, Design? I think it might be. I think there is something to be said for Marvel being a pretty extreme example. Of, right. Like, let's make something by committee and maybe remove some of the opportunities for creative feedback or changes. Because I think once you get to a certain scale it always becomes a question of like, how many cooks can we really have in this kitchen? Yeah. But I think on a smaller scale, when it comes to this sort of generational shift that I'm talking about, it really is about also opening up the opportunity for a plurality of voices to shine through and for there to be an understanding that this film is a product of and is influenced by so many more people than just the person who's calling the shots behind the camera.
0: Yeah. I mean, that film was, I mean, first of all, it's the 22nd film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I mean, just to give you a sense of, I couldn't believe that number. I don't know why it seemed odd to me, but it was a crazy number. And also that just, it was sort of like a Venn diagram of all the different franchises within that universe, you know, from Guardians of the Galaxy to Black Panther to all these things all kind of come together. But anyway, I still think it was a pretty good example of that genre. I love special effects, so I'm going to be a sucker for it.
1: But I have to say, I don't know if I'm going to go back to the film, as they say. (laughs) To me, Marvel movies are, they've hit a good stride of making perfectly enjoyable films. I at least like most of the ones they make. They may not stick with me. Most of them might not end up like in my favorites, but I rarely regret the time I spend with them. But of course, I can understand like the irritation with the extent to which they dominate the broader social consciousness especially now that they're really ramping up their efforts to be out there beyond the film like they're ramping up on TV like Disney Plus is going to roll out a bunch of these new Marvel shows. They want you to be like watching it a lot. And it's not just that because thanks to Marvel, like they are trying to make simac Universes a thing. Like that's what they've done to Star Wars. That's what they're trying to do with a lot of our properties. And let's also yeah. talk about ideologically.
0: I mean, my biggest issue with the films is ideologically, they sort of represent this idea that tech will save us. It represents this idea of like these rich people with all these resources are going to come and save the day because i mean i'm like you dan where it's i read comic books because they were about the people who didn't fit in and they're sort of complicated emotional histories and i mean at least for me they were like much more psychological and character based and i feel like these movies have sort of reduced them into these almost you know the good guys and the bad guys and that being sort of like the main focus and i can't say i'm too happy about that
1: there's this very strange friction within modern superhero properties on film and also in comics to a certain extent but so they're doing their best in comics i think to to try to solve that, although not always, like, satisfactorily. But to their credit, superhero comics are doing a big push to diversify now, which is good, to try to better reflect their readership and just broader social demographics. But there's this underlying friction of the fact that superheroes are, for the most part, an invention of lower class, uh, mainly Jewish creators from the 1930s and 40s, who almost to a person were ultimately fucked over by the companies that commissioned their work, which hogged the generous profits of a turn while leaving them out to dry. Just look up the case of Superman's creators and the very long, in some ways, I think still ongoing battle over the rights to that. And that sense of alienation and difference, like, stemming at the root of superheroes is very much down to that. And there's this all this stuff as the 60s come in with, like, countercultural ideas and, like, different voices come in. Like, Steve Dipko, an objectivist, was very influential in a lot of comics, especially Marvel. And it gets more complicated as the decades go by. But eventually, what you end up with is all these characters who now have this weight of decades in history behind them who have become almost archetypical and so they are now put within this context into like these tech gods essentially and the broad like arc of the marvel universe and story is incredibly neoliberal about these these very well-intentioned all-powerful mostly unaccountable mostly white people Although they're trying to like diversify that as well in the film. They're making those steps. Yeah. Those um, people, like, you can leave it up to them to like save the day. Different films like <laughs> sometimes have issues like with their implications in the way they go about it. Totally, I don't think it's a coincidence. I
0: mean, as much as I enjoyed Black Panther and I think it was an important film, you know, it was one of the first films to actually show publicly in Saudi Arabia. And if you think about that, I I don't think it's that much of a coincidence because the monarchy wins, right, over the rebels. You know, and I mean, so there are these hidden meanings that even if an American audience may not see, sometimes they sort of propagate these sort of ideas around the world in different kinds of ways. Dazan, I'm gonna give you the last word in terms of anything you wanna bring up that we haven't talked about. Any outstanding films or topics that you think is so important for film right now?
2: Yeah, I think I just want to go back to our conversation earlier about where films are screening and how we're experiencing them and I think that another film that was a favorite of mine from this year was a film made by Jotabi Gary which is called The Giverny Document. <laughs> And one of our writers, Rooney Elmy, did a really great interview with Tatavia for the site, where she really talks about the importance of this film as a film that was shot on location in Harlem, here in the U.S., and also shot in Giverny, France, in the gardens where Monet painted his water lilies, is the way in which we're thinking about autonomy and agency in this case specifically of like black women and what it means to think about like the safety and bodily autonomy of black women and I think that what I've been really happy to see not only in that film and also in other films is the way in which it wrestles with that as an open question you know and the way in which like, the film very much follows Gary as she's interviewing women on the street, asking them, do you feel safe? Mm-hmm. And this is a part of what Rooney talks about as well in her interview with Jatavia. But this idea of not offering like a neat answer, you know? Portraying things on screen that are messy and complicated and kind of still ongoing, and I think that that's really a part of what I have liked the most about films that I've seen this year is when there's no attempt to sort of create a neat answer, and I think that Marvel, in some ways, is the antithesis of that, where it's like, we have these superheroes that are going to save us and offer us these alternatives. But really, they're trying to solve problems that we're all still kind of wrapping our heads around. And so why not be okay with some of that uncertainty? I think we're living in a time where we can't really escape that. So I think that the more I see films that kind of lean into that mess and frustration and trauma and sort of, yeah, just uncertainty, for lack of a better word, I think the better
0: beautifully summed up. Well, thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dazan. A special thanks to Kill the Alarm for providing the music for this episode. The track you're hearing is Chemicals from the album Sleeping Giant. You can find more information at killthealarm.com. I'm Hrugvartanian, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Hyperallergic. Thanks for listening and enjoy your week. Turn off the static,
1: just to tune you out The chemicals, they don't help me now I overdose, still not over you All my clothes, smell of your
2: perfume
1: with someone new Turning pages Tracing every move You're my habit Burning with regret I wanna be past it But I can't
2: forget